Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. About 19, 20 years or so ago, it's been a while, uh, the fire department where I serve was called to assist the police department where I serve on a domestic incident. A divorced man and his ex-wife were having a very um, bad argument, and somewhere in the middle of that, a knife was drawn, and this man stabbed himself in the chest. So I get to the scene, and somehow, as the chaplain they thought it would be wise to let me drive the ambulance. So, so this is where, this is, this is, it was a chaotic scene. And so I'm driving the ambulance, and one of the other firefighters was actually riding shotgun while the, the paramedics were in the back working on the guy with the knife in his chest. And I can tell you, I have never been more nervous to drive in all my life. Hats off to ambulance drivers. I don't know how they do it. You know what I mean? Like, if you, if you stop and think about it, every time you're driving with somebody else in the car, you do have somebody else's life in your hands. You know, you stop and think about that. But there's something about the intensity of this that was very real. I, I froze. I literally couldn't remember how to get to the Manchester Hospital. And, and so, the, 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 you know, the, my shotgun driver, he's giving me directions, and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, don't let me get into an accident. Don't let me make a wrong turn. Like, it was, it was intense. So we finally pull the ambulance up to the ER and back it up, you know, and I come around, and the paramedics are giving the ER doctor the report and so forth, catching him up, and I hear the ER doctor say these words, time of death. You know, I've been to a lot of different scenes over the years and seen a lot of tragedy in what I do, and most of the time I've forgotten about it. But there are a few scenes that just stick with you. And I think anybody, any first responder would tell you that. For whatever reason, there's just certain scenes, and there's something about this one, the finality of it, Hearing those, seeing the knife in the chest, hearing those words, time of death, just has seared its way into my brain. I can't lose the picture in my mind. I can still see the man laying there and hearing those words. You know, in that moment, like, nothing else matters. Like, there's, there's no bills to pay, you know, there's no... Everything else is gone. I mean, and who cares what happens to the Red Sox? You know, like nothing else matters in that final moment. This morning, we reach the point in Revelation where it's as though God calls time of death on planet Earth. And it's going to be a long moment because it's going to take us for the next three weeks because uh, this morning we look at one part, the next Sunday, then the next Sunday. But essentially, we've reached this point in the book of Revelation where God says, that's it. And there's a finality to this that absolutely, if it does not shake us up, if it does not wake us up from slumber, I don't know what else will. 
Like, we've already witnessed some really heavy-duty things in Revelation, haven't we? It's already been intense. God has been working really hard to try to, to, through disaster after disaster after disaster, to try to get our attention. And we even saw a couple of weeks ago in the seventh trumpet that God even sent his own son as a substitute to pay the great sacrifice for our sins so that some of us would be brought to repentance. God has done everything he can do. And yet, many, 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 many still refuse to acknowledge his goodness, his love, his kindness, his answer to our sin. Many refuse to acknowledge it. And so today, starting today in the next three weeks, God says, enough's enough. Time of death. Now, here's an outline for us so that you know where we're going. Last Sunday, we looked at the battle. Remember last Sunday in Revelation 12 and 13, we learned that hell has its own version of the Trinity. We have the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hell has the unholy Trinity, the dragon and his two beasts. And remember, we learned the first beast is human government. The second beast is false religion. And there's some good indicators that point to those two things. Now, the starting this morning, you begin to see God bringing judgment and wrath against them. So this morning, we come to chapter 14 and 15, and we discover that God is bringing wrath upon the second beast, false religion. And then next Sunday, you'll discover that God is bringing his wrath and his judgment upon the first beast, human government. And the first beast is depicted, and today, the second beast, this false religion, is depicted with these seven bowls. Seven bowls. You say, well, why bowls? Because in the ancient world, every temple used bowls as part of their worship. And golden, special, sacred kinds of bowls. They were used for the collection of blood. They were used for the collection of holy water. They were used to keep incense in. You burn the incense out of the bowl. So for them, the bowl was an image of religion. Much the same way that if you see a cross, you think church. See, it's, it's a symbol. It's a picture of that. And so there's an association that John's bringing here. Seven bowls coming against false religion, and you'll see why it's also false religion in a moment. We're going to get into it. Next Sunday, we look at, the, at his, God's judgment, his wrath upon human government, and that's depicted as this caution, graphic language. That's depicted as this great whore called Babylon that Revelation talks about. And then in three weeks from today, we come to the final judgment where God brings it against the dragon himself, and it's the epic battle of the ages, which really isn't much of a battle at all, because how many of you know the devil really doesn't have anything on God? Amen? I mean, literally, it's like the easiest battle ever, but it's still the epic battle of the ages, and we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. So this morning, we look at Revelation chapters 14 and 15. If you got your Bibles open, we're going to dive right in. Now, there's two things that we need to understand about God's judgment as we get started. The first thing we need to understand about God's judgment is it is final. It's final. It's complete. God doesn't halfway judge. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't waffle. 
He doesn't, he doesn't, like, there's no appeals when God judges. You know that? No, there's no appeal. There's no fancy lawyer with, with, a, with a big paycheck who can somehow, like, argue around it and get God to change his mind. When God passes judgment, it's final. It's complete. He leaves no stone unturned. He leaves no detail overlooked. The second thing about God's judgment that we must understand is this. You're under it. Every one of us is under it. Every one of us is under God's judgment. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that by our very nature, we were objects of God's wrath. You woke up this morning, you're under wrath. By your very nature. The only question is this, whether or not you will bear it alone or you will let Jesus take it for you. It's the only question. Being under it is not the question. How you will face it, that's the question. Chapter 15 sets it up. Chapter 15, John introduces the players in this divine drama of this judgment that's about to unfold. Let's read Revelation 15, verses 1 through 5, okay? I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its name. Okay, remember, here's the first little clue. Last Sunday, we looked at this with the dragon and the two beasts. Which one of the beasts gave out the number 666? The second beast, false religion. That's important to keep that in mind, keep track of it. So these guys are victorious over who? The second beast. The beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts. Some of your Bibles probably say righteous judgments have been revealed. Verse 5, after this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. It was opened. Okay, so these first couple of verses, John introduces us to these people. And these are people that are, they're saints, they're God's people. And they're victorious, aren't they? Over the beast and over the number of the beast. And John uses uh, the picture of the Exodus. Remember we said one of the major themes in the book of Revelation is the Exodus story. God's taking his people, rescuing his people out of the world. And that's exactly what we see here, don't we? We see these people, they're standing on the other side of the sea, and they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And they're singing about God's deliverance. It's just like what happened in the Exodus story. God's people go through the Red Sea. And they stand on the other side of the sea. And remember, they turn and they see the Egyptian army coming behind them. They get drowned in the ocean there. And then Moses led the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 15 to sing a song of victory over their enemies. Same type of picture right here in the first couple of verses of chapter 15, right? 
We have God's people, victorious over the beast, standing by the sea, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And the song is interesting because the song celebrates the justice of God. It celebrates God's judgment. And you think, that's a weird song. We don't often sing about God's judgment, do we? We don't, I don't, actually, I can't think of any of our worship songs. Like, oh God, we just thank you for your judgment. You're so God, I could sing of your judgment forever. You know, we don't think, we don't have songs like that, do we? You wonder, but we ought to. Because isn't God's judgment a good thing? Like, haven't you ever, haven't you ever watched one of those court cases, you know, for the whatever reason that hits the news and starts getting played all over the place for weeks on end, and everybody's glued to this court case. You know what I mean? Just, there's national ones that hit the news. And have you not ever come at the end of one of those cycles and thought to yourself, something's missing. Something just doesn't seem quite right. I don't know about that verdict. You ever, you ever been there? See, God's judgment is perfect. When God judges, he knows all the details. There's no appeal. There's, there's no way to... God, God knows what's right, what's wrong, and he makes a just and true and accurate judgment every single time. And that's something that God ought to be praised for. Because the justice that you long for, that you know isn't totally complete in our culture, in our society, in our world, that justice that's missing, friends, that comes when God brings judgment. And so here's God's people praising him for his justice and his judgment because it's accurate and it's true, you see. And then we come into verse 5. And the doors of heaven, it says, are open now. Frankly, the, the English there just doesn't do it justice. Because you just read it and you go, okay, the doors of heaven are open. But actually in the Greek, in the language of John's writing, the word is literally translated flung open. So the doors of heaven are flung open. This, this, is, this is not God tipping his toes into the water to test the, test the waters. You know, this is not God going, I wonder maybe. This is, no, this is God going, Boom! He's, he's, it's, it's, a, it's a picture of God being decisive. God moving into action. God has determined what he will do, and there is nothing that will stop him. The doors of heaven are flung open. God has been patient. He's been long-suffering. He's given us many opportunities to repent, but God's patience has run out, and now is the time that he is dealing with it once and for all. These doors are flung open, revealing these brilliant angels who are given seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of of God. You see this in verse 7 of chapter 15. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God. Okay. Now it's going to get uncomfortable. Let's talk about the wrath of God for a moment, okay? It's not exactly our favorite subject, but we can't escape it. Here we are. Verse 7 says this. One author I read says that the earth is rapidly approaching a rendezvous with God's wrath. I like the way he said that. 
a rendezvous with God's wrath. Let's admit it, we would all prefer a God who is soft and fuzzy, and the idea of a wrathful God is unsettling, even distasteful to us at times. But when you stop and think about it, God's wrath is actually a good thing. We want God to be a wrathful God. You see, he has wrath because he is love. His wrath is so great because his love is so great. You don't really want a God who is cold and indifferent to your needs, do you? You don't really want a God who's unmoved by the things that hurt you, do you? You want a God who is deeply and intimately and passionately concerned about the things that hurt you, the things that destroy you, don't you? Even if those things are things that you have done, don't you? See, I'm, I, I, want God to, I want God to have wrath on other people's sins, just not on mine, don't we? But it doesn't work that way, does it? God has wrath because he loves so much. We want God to come to our defense. We want God. We need him to rescue us. The theologian Thomas McCall, he wrote a fantastic little book, and I'd recommend it. It's called Forsaken. It's on the, it's on the cry of dereliction is what it's called. It's the cry of dereliction are, are the words of Jesus from the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's called the cry of dereliction. He wrote this book on that. It's a little book, great little book. And in that book, he discusses the wrath of God. And he says this, he says, God's wrath is not detached or impersonal, nor is it the polar opposite of his love and mercy. It's not the selfish frustration or temper of someone who is self-obsessed and irate. Instead, it's the wrath of someone who loves deeply and powerfully. It is the wrath of someone who says, what are you doing to yourself? How dare you do such a thing? I like that phrase. It's the wrath of someone who loves deeply and powerfully. I want a God. I want God to love me deeply and powerfully, don't you? I don't want him to love me shallow and, with, and weak. How about it? I want him to love me deeply and powerfully. And God's wrath takes several different, a couple of different forms. Sometimes God's wrath looks like allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own bad choices. How many of you have experienced God's grace where you know you should have paid for it more than you did? See? Thank you, Jesus! And then there's other times where, for whatever reason, God in his wisdom chooses to remove that covering and allow us to suffer the consequences of the sin that we've committed. That is a form of God's wrath. See? And we see this actually in Revelation chapter 6. Remember a number of weeks ago we talked about the four horsemen? The four horsemen are essentially the natural consequences of the way that humans have treated one another down throughout history. 
But other times, God's wrath looks like it does here with these seven bowls that we're about to look at, where God moves with decisive action to judge the sins of humanity. And when God does that, he uses two different types of judgment. He uses redemptive judgment and destructive judgment. And we also see these in Revelation. Redemptive judgment is when we, see, we saw that in the trumpets two weeks ago, where the trumpets announce the trouble that's coming. It's so they're a warning. And he says, hey, change. Hey, repent. Change your course of action or you're going to get hit. See, these, this is redemptive judgment. The judgments are intended to change our mind. And it's when God frantically yells at his rebellious children, stop, you're going to get hit by that truck. It's redemptive judgment. Today in the seven bowls, we see destructive judgment. We have made, basically destructive judgment is this. You and I have made such a mess of things that the only way for anything redemptive to happen is it all needs to be destroyed. And God's only done this one other time in the history of the world. The flood. Noah and the flood. Destructive judgment. He hits the reset button. And that's what we see here. See, we tend to forget that, that the God who commanded us to love your neighbor as yourself, we love that command, but he actually obeys his own commands. You know that. God doesn't give you something that he doesn't do. So he obeys his own commands. He loves you as much as he loves himself, which is great until you realize that he has that the same high expectation he has of himself, he has for you. He is holy, therefore you be holy. He loves you as he loves himself. He holds you to the same standard to which he holds himself. Thankfully, he's patient, isn't he? Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says this, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see both in that scripture? He's gracious and kind and compassionate, forgiving and long-suffering. He's all of that. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There comes a point where God says, that's it, and his justice comes down, his judgment comes down, and he finally deals with every sin. And so in Revelation chapter 16, it tells us about God's wrath against sin, depicted in these seven bowls. But let me give you a tease. I know it's heavy, but you're going to love the seventh bowl, okay? So, with that, we get into chapter 16, and if your Bible's open, let me just, I'm going to read it fast, but we need to get the sense for the story. So, verse 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Clue, that's a big clue. Who gives out the second, who gives out the, be, the number of the beast? Second beast, okay. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood 
like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. They became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters. That's interesting to me. I'd love to think about that more, but there's an angel in charge of the waters. And this angel says, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, because think about it. God just turned all of his water to blood. And so the angel in charge of the waters says, that's cool. You are just, God, in your judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond. Hey, who's at the altar? Remember? Who's under the altar? The martyrs. Remember the martyrs. So the martyrs join in the song, and they, they agree with the angel. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the martyrs and the angel says, God, what you're doing is right on. Keep going, God. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. The sun was all loud to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. Kind of funny. They came out of the mouth of, now catch this, the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the second beast, is also called the false prophet. It's another indicator that it represents false religion. Okay? They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Jesus steps in and speaks, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. That's a little clue that's coming up next in chapter 17, next week. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so Terrible. Ooh. So let's just go through this quick. First one, pour out. God says, pour out these bowls of wrath, these bowls on the earth. Pour out. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, that speaks about God pouring out the Spirit, the Holy Spirit on people. 
And John is connecting these two events to make a really strong point. If you do not choose to receive the outpouring of his grace in the Holy Spirit, then be prepared to receive the outpouring of his wrath in these seven bowls. In verse 2, these bowls are poured out on those who received the mark of the beast. Don't miss that detail. Do you remember from last Sunday, which of the two beasts, we said, gives out the number? It's the second beast, false religion. Chapter 16, verse 13 also calls it the false prophet. So when we say false religion, let's be clear. We're not just talking about those who, you know, the fake Christians, those who claim to be Christians but are not. That's not what we're just talking about. You're talking about all false religion. Buckle up. We're talking about all the isms, Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism. You're talking about Christianity as a religion. You're talking about Islam, orthodoxy, the cults, secular humanism, Cosmic humanism, Darwinism, atheism is a system of beliefs. You're talking about the two new kids on the religious block, wokeism and critical race theory, both of which are religions. They're the hot ones. Any teaching, any system of beliefs that does not lead you to bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ is a false religion. Jesus made it simple. Follow me. The rest, everything else, is just spiritual politics. It's ecclesiastical red tape, man. These bold judgments are coming directly against the false religious beliefs that have deceived people away from Jesus. And this is why they look like the ten plagues that struck Egypt. Did you catch that? Did you notice the the resemblance? They look a lot like the plagues, don't they? Because the ten plagues that struck Egypt were a direct assault against the false gods of Egypt. Did you know that? Those ten plagues. And we have some of them here. You have painful sores. You have water to blood. We have the sun being affected, going dark. You even have frogs, just like the ten plagues. See? Back in Egypt, it's as if God was telling the Egyptians, hey, You want to worship the sun? How about I turn it off for a while? You want to worship the Nile, Egypt? How about I turn that into blood? See, God is, it's a direct assault against their false gods in order to demonstrate his superiority over it all. See, it's meant to reveal his judgment and the foolishness, our foolishness in false religion. Hey, do you want to know what's worse than sin? You know what's worse than sin? The stupid things you do to fix it. False religion. See, why don't we just change course and return to God? Why don't we? Why do we continue to plow forward when we know that everything we're doing is not working? Why do we do that? You cannot imagine how much God hates false religion. It makes a mockery of what his son did on the cross. 
False religion is the epitome. It's the zenith of our pride because we fail and then we actually have the audacity to think we can fix it ourselves. God mocks. Listen, please hear me. I love you, friend. Listen. If there is any shred in your soul, any sliver of thinking that somehow you're a good person and that's why you're going to heaven, hear me clearly. You are trapped in false religion. You're wearing the mark of the beast. You need to repent. Listen, on your best day, on your best day, your righteousness is filthy rags in God's sight. What makes you think that you're good enough to deserve heaven? <laughs> listen, listen, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just, oh, friends, do you, false religion has so entwined itself in our thinking that I, I don't know how else to get through to us. Like, we've got to somehow get this, friends. The other judgments that we've read about the, the trumpets and the seals, they, they were intended to expose sin. These bowls of wrath are specifically exposing self-righteousness. False religion gives you like a moral soapbox you can stand on so that you can think you're so right. Meanwhile, the soapbox is plummeting to hell. You say, well, why? Because Jesus isn't on it. And if Jesus isn't on it, it's going to hell. You know, the problem with religious people is they don't need Jesus. They've got religion. That's the problem with false religion. It gives you itself. And they'll ride their religion right into hell. Have you ever noticed that religious people are some of the hardest people to convince of their need for Jesus? Some of the hardest people. And we see that here in chapter 16 as well. Did you notice three times? Three times. Not only do they not repent, but they curse God and refuse to repent. You notice that? Not once, twice, three times in the one chapter. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 21. Oh, we are stubborn in our religious selves. Don't miss the love of God, though, in this. Please don't miss it. Okay, God's love is all over chapter 16, as, as, as harsh as it looks. Verse 13 and 14 tell us about these frog-looking demon things that go around the world. And, and you think that's really weird, and it is weird. And you say, why would John use frogs? to depict demonic spirits. And there's probably two reasons for it. First, John, remember, is connecting it to the Exodus. So he's writing this. He's like, let's work the frogs in. And listen, I don't think that that's, that makes it less inspired. John is connecting these two events so that we don't miss the message. It's very important that we get the message. So that's one reason. But I think the other reason is, in the ancient world, everybody considered frogs unclean, no matter who you were. And so frogs were just nasty, and they, they end up being a great picture of demons. They're unclean, they're smelly, they're nasty, they're slimy, right? 
But you notice that as ugly as these frog-like demonic spirits are, they are impressive. Did you catch that? They actually are doing miracles, and they're deceiving the kings of the earth, and they're luring them actually into a battle that will ultimately be their end. And, and, and while he's telling us about these demonic frog spirits and how they deceive the world with miracles, then what does Jesus do? If you have a red-letter Bible, verse 15 verse is in red letters. Because in the middle of this, it's like Jesus like interrupts it. He inserts himself into the text, doesn't he? And, and, he, and he warns you. And, and I love this. Remember back at, the, I think, at the very beginning, we learned John uses this one word, iudi. He uses it five times in the book of Revelation. And it means, wake up! Do you remember that? I'm sure you, how can you not? We did that five times that Sunday. Wake up! And this is where one of them is. This is one of the iudis. Jesus jumps in the middle of this and he goes, wake up! You got to pay attention! Don't get caught with your pants down. That's how we would say it in West Virginia. I mean, he says it, you know, don't get caught, remain clothed, don't go naked and shamefully exposed. Don't get caught, Jesus says. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Jesus urgently, urgently pleads with us, you see, to, to not fall asleep, right? Wow. Because otherwise, he says, these kings, this whole, the whole world, all these people are being lured into this place called Armageddon. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the word Har Megiddo, and it means hill of slaughter, literally. And it's an actual place. Karis and I have been there, and many battles have been fought actually on that plain over the centuries, uh, many, many battles, in fact. But So it's, it's an appropriate symbol, it's an appropriate image to be used for this final epic battle of the ages, the battle of Armageddon. And so here's these demons, they're deceiving these people into this, and you think, oh, this is... And Jesus is trying to protect us. Don't get sucked into this, church. Don't. Stay awake. Please. Because you know how deceptive false religion can be. Now, all of this sounds terrible. And today's probably made you uncomfortable a little bit. Tough subject. But here's some good news. Ready? There's a surprising twist in the seventh bowl. And it's wonderful. In verse 17... This angel, the seventh angel, pours out his bowl of wrath, and this voice comes thundering through. And what does the voice say? It is done. And then after it is done, what happens? Rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake. The rocks get split, it says. The city gets split. Okay, you Bible scholars. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said the words, it is finished, what does the gospel of Matthew tell us happened? Rocks split. An earthquake rumbled. The sky grew dark. The veil in the temple was split from top to bottom. John is depicting the crucifixion of Christ in the seventh bowl of wrath. This is so cool. 
Because the seventh trumpet, remember the seventh trumpet? It was the coming of the Messiah. He brought his kingdom to earth. Now the kingdom of God, now the kingdoms of earth have become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. That's the seventh trumpet. And here we are in the seventh bowl. It's the crucifixion of the Messiah. And the Messiah takes upon himself. He satisfies the wrath of God on the cross. There he absorbs God's wrath, his judgment for every sin ever committed by anyone in the history of the world. Jesus took it on the cross. A theologian named D.A. Carson, he says it this way. He says, do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. The cross is as horrific as it is because you're witnessing the wrath of God. The wrath of God being poured out on one individual, his son, perfect son, paying the price for our sins. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Mm. And then John, 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation is a fancy word, I know, but it simply means to satisfy wrath. The, the picture is this, you <clears throat> are the guilty one and you're standing before God, the judge of the universe, and God is laying out to you every wrong that you've ever committed, every lie, every cheat, every bad thought, every little dirty thing, all the things you thought were hidden that nobody else knew. God knew them. All the times you said, hey, it's not hurting anybody. It's just me. All those times, God knew it. He saw it. He's laying it all out. And as he lays it out, you are sinking lower and lower and lower and lower. Because he's exposing all of your sin. And just as he takes the gavel and he begins to take that down to hit the desk, to cast sentence against you on the sin that you have committed. His wrath is about to come down on you hard. Jesus steps in, and he takes it. He says, Father, I, I died for that. I'll take it. And this is why I say, friends, you woke up this morning under the wrath of God. You're all being judged. We're all being judged. The only question is whether or not I will bear it on my own or will I let Jesus take it for me. That's the only question. Jesus, we learn here in the seventh bowl, satisfies the wrath of God. So why would you want to be under it? You don't need to be. Jesus paid for it. Does this make sense? And this is why the wrath of God is expressed against false religion specifically. This is why God hates false religion so much, because false religion tries to tell you that the that wrath really isn't that bad, and you can fix it on your own. Just follow our rules, go through our system, 
take our six classes, you know, follow our moral code, and now you're going to escape the wrath of God. It's false religion. It makes a mockery of God's loving sacrifice on the cross where God took the wrath upon himself, where he paid the price himself for human sin so that if anyone believes in him, he would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you see it? Do you see it? The death and the resurrection of Jesus was apocalyptic. It literally changed everything. The message of Revelation is that by locking arms with Jesus, you are aligning yourself with the right side of history. Sometimes it looks like truth is losing, doesn't it? Sometimes it looks like wisdom is defeated. Sometimes it looks like the world's philosophies, the false religions, the power brokers. It looks like they're the winners, but no. The message of Revelation is even if you die in the cause of Jesus, you wear the victor's crown. When the dust of battle settles, the last people standing will be the people of God. And that's how chapter 15 opens, doesn't it? With the people of God standing by the sea of glass, playing their harps, singing about the righteous judgment of God. Isn't that cool? So here's the bottom line for us today, friends. God's wrath is real, and it's your choice as to whether or not you stay under it or escape it. As long as you maintain that you're a good person <clears throat> and, that somehow, and that Jesus died to make you a better person, <clears throat> you're wearing the mark of the beast. And I'm here to plead with you to drop your false religion, to repent of it, and bow your knee to Jesus as your only hope. Let me just close with this story. And Karis, you can play if you'd like, sweetie. You know, a bunch of years ago, my grandfather gave me, uh, gave Karis and I, we were married, um, <clears throat> an old table that he had made. And it was a mess. <clears throat> and uh, he had cut it and... You know, he was a smoker, so it had burn marks on top and all kinds of stuff. It was a messy table. It was an old table, but it was a black walnut table, beautiful table. And I tried to fix it up uh, and use it, but by fixing it, I made it worse. And uh, so then it sat in our basement for a long time. And about a year and a half or so ago, our daughter was uh, moving out and wanted to get her an apartment over own and she wanted that table for her apartment and I said well great so we pull out that table and of course it's ugly because I tried to fix it and so I talked with Mike Yakka I said hey Mike is there anything you can do with this table and uh and Mike actually took it and you know what it looks really good wow he does a great job on that table and just fixed all of my bad mistakes you can't even tell that I worked on it like it just looks fantastic this table and now she's using it and she's enjoying it dear friends uh, hear this the epitome of pride the epitome of pride is for you to sin and then think you can fix it the epitome of pride is for you to take the ugly table of your life and somehow think that a little bit of sandpaper or whatever you can cover that up and fix it you need to take it to the only one who can. See, so our options are either I let Jesus fix it or I keep trying to fix it myself and just keep making it worse. 
And do you notice that our culture is making things worse and worse every day? But do you understand that? Do you understand why? Don't, don't judge it. No, Lo love these people. Because they're just trying to fix, they're doing the best they can in their own strength. They're trying to fix the messes, but they just make it even messier. They make it worse, right? And here's you and me. We're like, hey, Jesus is the answer. I, I, I know how to fix that. Well, I, I guess I don't know how to fix it, but I know who can, right? I, I, Jesus can fix that. See? So there's no judgment here on anybody. The truth is we're all in this ugly boat. And, and if it wasn't for the gift of Jesus, there'd be no hope for any of us, see? So this is our option. This is our option. Wave the white flag of surrender and say, okay, Jesus, we screwed it up. I will accept your sacrifice on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And I love that picture, huh? I can see myself sinking lower and lower and lower before the judgment, throne, judgment seat of God. And I'm holding up my hands like this, ready for the final blow. And then Jesus steps in. He says, I, I paid for this one, Dad. Whew. How about it? Okay, friends, the time is now. Um. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.